Our scripture reading, our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Esther, verses 13, uh, uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. You can find that in your pew Bibles, page 445. Please read along with me. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you are a guest this morning, we welcome you again. It encourages us that you're here. Thank you for being with us on Friends Day. Uh, we want to show ourselves friendly. Uh, we want to be everything that God would want us to be uh, to everybody that we know. And we appreciate so much you coming and being part of this day with us. And we look forward to getting to know you better. And we would invite you to come back at any opportunity that you have. We would love to have you. We do want to remind everyone that we will have our afternoon service at four o'clock at Charlie Daniels Park. There will be a service also here at six o'clock if that's more convenient for you. But we want to give you a few reminders about some details about the service at the park at four o'clock. The shuttles will begin running at three and there will be parking. You turn right beside Sonic and go down Charlie Daniels Park and there will be an officer there directing traffic and you can park behind the middle school and we'll have four different shuttles running and those shuttles will run consistently from three o'clock until dark. So if someone is, is concerned about, I may need to leave early, uh, what if I'm running a little bit late getting there? Uh, they will be running from three o'clock until dark. So those provisions be made. If you are a senior or need handicapped parking, uh, we have Jeremy Keff and Mitch Poscovich that have gone way out of their way to make sure that you will actually be able to get in and out easier there than you do here. And that's no exaggeration. Uh, there'll be special places for you to park that are already reserved right now. Uh, at Charlie Daniels Park, you'll be very close to the amphitheater there. And then there uh, is shuttles that will uh, pick you up as you step out of your car. If you park just right, you might can step from your car to the shuttle and, and literally take you right up the path. And there'll be two more gentlemen there uh, that will be seating you in these padded chairs here that the only time that they have ever left our church building will be for this occasion. But it's to make sure that you're comfortable and make sure that everything is the best that it can be for you. 
Uh, we look forward to being in the park this afternoon. That is a public facility and it's open. And we hope that hundreds from the community will be there and we're going to invite them to come over and join us. If you've ever been to El Salvador or settings like that, how many times have we met and worshiped in public places there? And we've said as we've gone around and invited people to join us, we have said hundreds of times on those trips, we wish we could do that at home. Well, this is the opportunity to reach out. And so we're going to invite people to join us. And afterwards, we'll have the ultra hot dog supper. And you can bring uh, chips, drinks, desserts. And as you arrive to the place to park, there'll be a table that you can drop those. You won't have to bring those with you on the shuttle. That'll be taken care of. And we'll be inviting those in the park to join us. We're planning to uh, prepare several extra hot dogs uh, just so we can invite people to join us. And then also as we have activities, we have activities for adults. Uh, we did go ahead and plan some activities also for children and for teens. Uh, but we have uh, adults for uh, activities for adults also. And, and I'll just point this out to you as you can see from what I'm emphasizing. This, from the time it was originated, all the way through, this was never meant to be a young person's worship service. Uh, what this is, is this an opportunity for us to get together and, and to worship together and to invite our friends in and let the community see who we are and invite them to come and be a part of it. And so join us in that evangelistic effort this afternoon and we look forward to the wonderful uh, time that we can spend together and probably just before dusk, there will be several that will gather under one of the pavilions and will enjoy singing until dark. And so uh, be prayerful about that and be uh, planning on coming. If uh, your afternoon is so that you can schedule it, plan on arriving a few minutes early uh, rather than having four or 500 arrive at 10 till four and then trying to shuttle. Uh, we can shuttle 80 at a time, but still that would get a little bit complicated. So if, you're, if your afternoon allows it, plan on arriving at 3.30 or a few minutes before that and, and it'll give us plenty of time to, to get everybody over. We look forward to that time together. When Lady Diana was only 17 years old and she was serving as a nanny for three months to a little girl who was a two-year-old, she was unlikely candidate to be a princess. As a matter of fact, when there was some interest shown in her family, Charles showed interest to her older sister. But yet in 1980, as Princess Diana went and watched him at a polo match, the interest in each other struck. And by 81, he proposed to her. And he gave her an engagement ring that was a sapphire surrounded by 14 diamonds. And the ring was the size of a walnut. And 81, we saw her marriage. The best way to describe her marriage was that it was a fairy tale marriage type setting. 750 million people around the world watched as this lady walked down the aisle, pulling behind her a train that was made of exquisite lace that was 25 feet in length. And when I think of that story about how at the age of 17, she was virtually unknown to the world. In the matter of just a few years, she became one of the most popular people in the entire world. What a story. That kind of reminds me of the story of Esther. The story of a girl who probably during the Babylonian captivity, her parents were killed. A little orphan girl that was unknown. A cousin, a first cousin, decided to adopt her and take care of her. She ends up 
becoming queen of Persia. And not just that. But when her people were at risk of being annihilated, she was the one who courageously stepped forward and preserved her nation. And the result of that, of course, is that she preserved the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Truly, it is one of those stories that if we were to hear it for the very first time, our conclusion would be, that seems almost too good to be true. It seems almost like one of those stories that would begin once upon a time. And if you look in your Bible, I hope you have your Bible and open to the book of Esther. And if you don't have your Bible, I hope you'll grab a Bible that's in the pew there and, and look on page 442. On page 442, I'd like for you to notice how this does begin as we go back a slide. Look at this as it says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. Now it came to pass in the days of. There's about five times in the Hebrew writing of the Old Testament that a similar phrase to that is used. And did you know that each time it has a very happy ending like our fairy tales do, but there are very, very many difficult aspects of the story before it gets to that happy ending. As a matter of fact, in our English Old Testament, there's only two times that his exact phrase is used, and it's used in the book of Ruth and the book of Esther. And of course, if we flip to the end of both of those books, we read those almost happy ever after uh, endings where we say, isn't that wonderful? That's just such a powerful story. For example, even with this story, when we see Nehemiah going back and building the wall, why do you think that there was favor to the Jews at that point in time? Keep in mind, Esther was probably still alive. Her husband, the king, would not have been alive at this point. But there's no reason to believe that Esther would not have still been alive. She was the beloved queen. She had that influence. She had that reputation. And so you can imagine when a Jew comes in and asks the king, can we go back and can we build the wall around our city, Jerusalem? There would have been that sympathy to the Jews because of the influence of the queen. And so again, we look to the end of that story and we say, that's just such a sweet and such a powerful story. But let's not forget how it began. Let's not be forget that beginning of the sorrow of her parents dying. Let's not forget that sorrow of her being ripped away from her home and being probably forced to go and to be one of the many participants in a beauty pageant. You see, as we look at our lesson this afternoon at the park, one of the things that we're going to study then will be hope. We live in a time where people want hope. They're feeling a little more stressed and perhaps even a little more desperate than usual. And people want hope. And I urge you to just take this point in this lesson now and put it on hold. And, and not that we'll study Esther this afternoon, but it is that same topic. Is that a lot of those stories that end saying, wasn't that a wonderful ending? We forget that they had moments before that seemed as if the heart was being ripped out. As if the burden that's laid on our shoulders is so great we can't bear it. And there's probably those times for many that have happy endings that end up saying during the midst of it, I don't know if I can bear this anymore. What gives us hope? 
But as we think about that and we come back to our study this morning, I ask you to consider with me this beautiful story that as it begins as a once upon a time story, actually the first chapter does not mention Esther. It's not about her. The first chapter is actually about the king. And so what I'd like for us to do for a few minutes this morning is I'd like for us to look at the king who in his life was an extreme opposite of what Esther was. And the more we study the king, the more Esther shines. And the more we study Esther, the more the king looks ridiculous and pitiful. And then I'd like to ask you, where are you this morning? If we're thinking about influence and we're thinking about friendships and we're thinking about what really makes a difference in the lives of people, Here's a woman who not only made a lot difference in the life of a few people around her, she made a difference in the life of her entire nation. What kind of influence do you and I have? How are we using that influence? Let's compare these two individuals. First, we read of the king. He is described as Ahasuerus in much of this. He's also called Xerxes. You can read about him in the Bible. You also can go through secular history books and you can read about this man. He was a very illustrious king. And as we read about this king, we read immediately in the first chapter of his great wealth. And not only that he had the great wealth, but we see that he wanted to show off the great wealth. As a matter of fact, here as the story begins, for 180 days, as he reigns over 100 provinces, he calls in the leaders of all the provinces because he wants to show them his wealth. I'll pause there for just a moment. How long would it take for you to show somebody your wealth? I could probably do that in about five or ten minutes' time. And, and, and if that's an exaggeration, I know I could do it in a half a day. Now think about it. Here is a king that his wealth is so great, he calls in the most powerful people of his land, and he spends 180 days... And we get just a glimpse of the last seven days where we have this feast taking place. And if you're glancing in your Bible at, at verse 6 and 7 of the first chapter, you'll notice that there were linen curtains and they were blue and they were white. And you'll notice that they're hanging on rods that were made of silver. And you'll notice that they're on columns that are marble. And then the couches that everybody's sitting on, they're gold and silver. And then the mosaic that makes up the pavement and the flooring, all of that is made of black and turquoise and white marble. Now, we could continue on in the next verse to show that as he served everyone, their goblets or their glasses, everyone was unique. Now, I would suggest to you that that's probably not like my cabinet where you could go to and everyone's unique, but it wouldn't be for the same reason, all right? What is God wanting us to see in chapter 1? God wants us to see a man who has an abundance and then to show us how he uses these things. Keep in mind... We could also turn over to other Old Testament stories and we could see kings that had just as much wealth and God is not condemning them for their wealth. Solomon was a wonderful man and a righteous man, especially until the latter years of his life. And he was very wealthy. 
Job was a wonderful and godly man. He was very wealthy. David was a wonderful and godly man. He was very wealthy. You see, the setup here in chapter 1 is not to say, hey, let's throw darts at people that have things. That's not what God is doing here. God is showing us how this man used his wealth and his influence as a king. And what did he do? He abused wine, we see as we go to verse 10, which is interesting because he could have read in the book of Proverbs. You remember a lot of time we, we talk about Proverbs 31 being about the virtuous woman and it is beginning at verse 10 and on. But you remember that the first nine verses is a writing where a mother told her son what he needed to do in his life to be an effective king. And one of the things that she told her son to be an effective king, it is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. He didn't listen to the wisdom that had been written beforehand. And so in his drunkenness, along with some other men, at this point the women have separated their feasting for seven days and now he has separated a few men and they have their feasting for seven days and the queen is so beautiful. Her name is Vesta and he calls for her to come in so that she could parade her beauty before the men. What is implied here is that it would be something very immoral. At this point in the story, she is the one who shows a compass of morality and she refuses to do so. Isn't that interesting that whenever individuals become self-centered, they think that their wealth is to make them look good. They think that their power is so that they can get what they want. Now note this, and that self-centeredness will always cause them to abuse or neglect other people. You see, the wealth was not so he could serve the people in his kingdom. His wealth was, I'm going to invite all the other wealthy people and I'm going to let them see my kingdom for 180 days so that they can see I'm more wealthy than they are. His power as a king? What was his power as a king? I can command anybody to do anything, even if it's the queen, I can make her do what I want. Well, have you considered the queen? No, I'm not considering her. It's what I want. Which, by the way, just a little sub-note. You see, because of his self-centeredness, she had become nothing more than an object. And that's what pornography and our over-sexualization of our culture today has done to the status of women. And it's a, it's a two-edged sword. When women dress so that all that is provoked in a man's thought is about the woman's body, what she actually is saying is, I don't want you to see me as a person. I want to be an object. And when men are lusting and fueling lust, they're saying, notice it's self-centeredness. Life is about me. Life is about what I want. Well, what is a woman? She is an object for me. The dangers of self-centeredness the danger is that we always misuse what God has given us and we always hurt other people. I want you to imagine, men or women, if you could imagine poor Vashti. She stood up for what was right. But in embarrassment and by 
the, the force or the influence of the king's people, he actually sent out a decree that was to be read among every province so every man and woman would hear of how she rebelled against the king and then a decree was made that she would never be allowed to step before the king again. And we do not know if that means that in her banishment that she was executed. Or does that simply mean that she had to be moved out of the palace? Either way, the result was not an action by the king that said, I want to do what's right and best for her. And what was the result? We don't find a lot of fulfillment and satisfaction in his life after that. As a matter of fact, if you have your Bible open, you look at the second chapter in verse 1. Notice what it says there. It says, after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti. Now, if you go back and study secular history and you put all this on the timeline, you know something that God chose to not record between chapter 1 and chapter 2? A few years have passed here. And what God chose not to record was uh, the historical battle of where he was going to go in in his greed and take over another civilization and he wanted the Greek empire. And so he took his 1,400 ships between chapter 1 and chapter 2 to take over that empire because they only had 300 ships in their navy. And while he was away leading that expedition... The 300 ships pretty much destroyed the 1,400 ships. And the supporting troops on the ground were almost annihilated. And he literally had to tuck his tail and he had to run back home. And now he comes back home as a whipped soldier and a man that remembers, wow, I really mistreated my wife. Question. In times of sorrow, do people start making the right decisions? In times of regret, do people start making the right decisions? Would there be anybody here this morning that would fall under the category to say, I look back the way I've treated some of my friends recently and I'm not, I'm not proud of what I've said or done to them. I look back the way I've treated some of my family recently. I'm not, I'm not thankful for what I've said and done. Can anybody here look back and regret? Now please get this point. It doesn't matter how great our regret is if we do not change the core of who we are. If we still remain self-centered, we will just take those regrets and continue to do wrong. Friends, please get this. Wishing things were better doesn't make it better. Regretting that things in the past have been the way they are doesn't make things better. And so now this man that looks back and apparently he regrets that he treated his wife, the queen, the way he did. But you know what the self-centered man does? He listens to the advice of his counselors that says, you just need another woman. As a matter of fact, you need hundreds of women. I tell you what, we'll send a decree among the provinces. We'll send officers from the king out. And as we go into the second chapter, what we see was that all of the beautiful women were forced to come and to participate in a beauty pageant. And you say, now force, how could that be so bad to participate in the king's beauty pageant? All right, imagine this. As we read along, what we see is that they had to spend a year away from home just in preparation. There was two six-month segments. That, isn't that interesting? The most beautiful women were selected, but that wasn't good enough for the king. The most beautiful women were selected, then they had to spend a year making the most beautiful women more beautiful. See how... In his mind, women were just objects. 
the result of self-centeredness. Well, why is that still so bad? If, if you get pampered by a king's palace for a year, you know, many women might would hear at least that much and say, that sounds like it would be a wonderful vacation. Well, you see, here's the end of it that sometime I think we overlook in this story. And it really shows us the self-centeredness and the immorality of this man. You see, as we glance down in verse 12, 13, and 14 of the second chapter, we find out that what this man had set in order was the fact that these young women would come in and for six months and then another six months and then whenever their night was called, they had one night to impress the king. And they could get anything from the palace, any of the garments that they wanted. In other words, they could make themselves look as beautiful and they could offer the king whatever they wanted to offer. But they had one night to come into his quarters and by morning they were sent not back to where they came from and not back to their home where their mothers and fathers were and perhaps old boyfriends and past dreams and how I'm going to have this home one day and we're going to have children one day and I've got all of these dreams about what I'm going to do in my life one day. Oh no, they weren't sent back to that. Once they left that one night with the king, they were sent over to a second house of the king's. And that was where the concubines were kept and they would never leave there or be called back into the king unless he remembered their name. Not much more than female slaves the rest of their life. Friends, what I've just described to you is unthinkable. But that's what people do when they are self-centered. Oh, I made a terrible mistake. I've lost in battle. I've lost my wife. Let me do something better. Let me just now take hundreds of women and let me ruin their life. Because after all, maybe in ruining all of their lives, maybe my life will end up better. Self-centeredness turns us into beast-like creatures that acts as if it's self-preservation and nobody else matters. But yet on the other hand, we have Esther. And Esther shines in this story. Esther is a woman who takes her beauty and the influences that God gives her, and she uses them to bless the people around her. She remains wise because of her humility. If you still have your Bible open there, the second chapter, look at verse 15. She would not go into the king until she listened to everything that one of his eunuchs that knew him very well suggested that she do. And then once she is appointed as the queen and the great feast is held, think how easy it would have been for her to become proud and arrogant and look back at her first cousin Mordecai and say, get out of here, I, I don't need you in my life anymore. But instead, when we read down in verse 20, the last half of that verse says, Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. You see what she's doing? In her humility, she is wise because she listens to wise counsel. You ever see someone that was a know-it-all? What kind of friend does a know-it-all make? Because one will not listen. That's a sign of arrogance, but it also produces foolishness. Not only was she wise, but she was very sacrificial. As the story unfolds, and if you're not familiar with this story or if it's been a while since you read it, I encourage you to read the book of Esther this week. You might want to read it a couple of times. It's such a great short story to read. 
Finally, she has the opportunity to reach out and help save her people. And as we go to the fourth chapter of the text that was capably read this morning, I'd like for you to notice that she needs to go before the king. She needs to make a plea, but no one can go before the king unless they've been invited. And so can you imagine... She knows she has to go and finally she asks for fastings and then after that she says, I'm going, I'm going to do it. Can you imagine? She goes into the back door. If he doesn't raise his golden scepter, she is immediately put to death. Before she does that, she understands the risk as she says at the end of verse 16, if I perish, I perish. What makes a good friend? Not only a wise friend, but a sacrificial friend. One that says, you truly are worth more than me. One that says, my life is not more important than your life. One that can truly say, what I want is not more important than what you want. But the best friend of all is one who is wise and sacrifices to God so that we know that ultimate friendship. I'd like for us to close this morning by referring to Philippians, the second chapter. If you'd like to turn there in the Pew Bible, it's 1043. I'd like for you to think about the example that we have in the scripture of the greatest friend. You see, what I want us to see this morning is, as we compare this king and this queen, it's not that what we're saying is, would you just work on friendship? What we're saying this morning to each one of us is that the only way to work on friendship is to be unselfish and make sure that we feel our life serving God because God truly teaches us how to be a faithful friend. He's always been faithful to you and I. As a matter of fact, in Philippians, the second chapter, as we read down in verse seven, eight, and nine, he talks about Jesus' example, how he humbled himself. He left heaven to come to earth, not as a royal prince, but to come as a man that would be a servant and then not would have an easy life, but he would end up being executed in his humility. And then it's leading up to that that we read these two verses in 3 and 4. Let nothing, Philippians 2, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Can I say in my life, that's the way I interact with people. I do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, can I say this? I esteem others better than myself. Verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of of others. You see that? Unselfishness. Esteeming others. Having a genuine interest in others' interest. Is that the way we'll live today? Is that the way we'll conduct ourselves at the park this afternoon? Is that the way we'll live with our neighbor? Is that the way we'll go into work tomorrow? We'll go into school? Is that the way we'll interact in our community? Will I truly do everything without a selfish ambition? Holding others up and saying, you know what? I have a genuine interest in your interest. That's why Jesus came to this earth. He was unselfish. He held us up. And he had an interest in the fact that we needed a Savior. I love those words that Mordecai said to Esther. Again, in the text that was read, when he said, Yet who knows? whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He didn't say to her, you're the only hope. In that same verse, 4 and 14, earlier he said, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. 
Meaning, if you won't do it. Friends, it's not that God needs us. If there's somebody in your family that needs something, and if there's a neighbor that needs something, and if there's a coworker that needs something, God's not looking at you and saying you're the only source. If you don't want to be a part of God's plan, He can find somebody else to carry out His work. But it just may be that He's placed you in the family He's placed you. It may be that He's placed you in the workplace, in the school, in the community, on the street, just for a particular reason for you to make some kind of difference in somebody's life. How do we do it? Be more like Esther and more like our Lord Jesus and less like a self-centered king who really lost his way in life. This morning, what kind of friend are you? Think about the two guys that were out walking, one old and one young, and, and they saw a bear. And the young guy in his strength and athletic ability he quickly climbed up the tree and the older man was trying to climb the tree and he couldn't and finally the older man just fell to the ground and acted like he was dead. And the bear came and he sniffed around him and even nuzzled him right in the ear. Finally he left the old guy alone and long time after he left and clear out of sight, finally the young man came back down the tree and they walked along again and laughing there, the young guy said, so, what did that bear whisper to you whenever he nuzzled you there in the ear? And he said, he gave me some advice. He said, what's that? He said, he told me to never travel in life with a friend who would abandon me during danger. What kind of friend are you? Do you esteem others? you esteem yourself? Do you think your skills, your wealth, your beauty, your, whatever God has put in your life is for you or is it for you to serve others? What kind of friend are you? Let it be that we understand that as God's child, we'd never abandon another person. This morning, are you a Christian? Have you become a part of God's family? It's the best relationship that we can join in. And it's a relationship that helps us in all of our other relationships. If we can help you, if you need uh, questions answered, if you want to study God's word deeper, or if you're ready this morning to be baptized into Christ, we just want to help you wherever you are, whatever we can do. If you've been a Christian and you lost your way and you want to come back this morning, confess sin and pray forgiveness, however we can help you.